Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in, this is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you've found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I really appreciate you joining me on the show today. And judging from some of the recent episodes that we've dropped that have been more data specific, I think you're gonna love this one for all of you data hounds out there. That's right. We're gonna dive once again into some key benchmarks on your P&L, give you some context around that. Bumped into a couple of these with some, with some consulting clients lately. So I think this will be top of mind to many of you as we roll into a, a new year here. Thanks so much for joining me. Make sure you brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee and definitely get your pad and pen ready. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I do appreciate you joining me. I also appreciate so many of you who send me emails uh, and some text messages even about some of the stuff we share on the podcast and other questions you've got, because sometimes that's both food for thought and cannon fodder as it relates to building additional episodes. (laughs) So as, as all of that relates to metrics, data, and benchmarks. Uh, and most of the benchmarks on a PL are fairly well known uh, to most people. I'm gonna dive into a couple that um, either people don't know about or they don't have the right frame of uh, context around. And I think this may be a little bit of a different spin on a few of these. And if it gives you a different way of looking at your business, then we've uh, accomplished our mission for today. So let's dig into some of the the top benchmarks and and the ones that we tend to focus on most often or sometimes get the most pushback on. So the first is revenue. Well, okay, Perrin, revenue, more is better, right? Yeah, kind of, sort of, not really. So here is the way to think about revenue. Um, yeah, revenue can, uh, more can be better than than less, certainly. But if you are a growing group practice and you are adding additional locations, buy or build, then you're probably growing revenue at a pretty steady clip because you're adding new locations each year or potentially you're increasing capacity. We tend to break down revenue a little bit differently. Uh, And especially when we are uh, working with a client in a consulting relationship and or when we are working with a client in a sell side advisory relationship. So here's the way to think about this. Big picture. The analysts that follow the dental industry overall, the, the, the business of dentistry, are forecasting the, the industry to grow at about 5% annually over the coming four to five years, all right? Now, that's the, that's the entire profession. In that bucket, we've got traditional solo practices, we've got doctor-led groups, and we've got enterprise-level DSOs. And those are not all growing equally uh, in terms of revenue. I think we all know that. So the question becomes, what's the weighted average or how does this all play out when solo practices 
still make up about half of the overall market. And we know those businesses are struggling for growth because insurance reimbursement rates are declining and they don't typically invest a lot of money in marketing to begin with. So revenue growth in a solo practice is usually about one to 2%. Well, if if they make up 50% of the industry, and the industry is forecasted to grow at 5%, what does that mean in a group practice context? Well, what it means is that group practices are typically growing 10% uh, revenue or more annually. All right, so there's your first wrinkle to the revenue discussion. Additionally, those that are, that are building group practices and adding locations are, understandably, adding a lot of revenue year over year because you're acquiring it. Well, the next wrinkle to this question is not just looking at the business in terms of overall revenue growth that would include acquisitions, but to look at the individual same store sales. That's practice by practice revenue one year to the next. And here is the key to this revenue number. If you are building a group practice, it is one thing to to buy or build additional locations. If your core businesses, the established practices, are not growing themselves at 10% or more per year, you are falling behind. And I will tell you that in a sell-side context, that's a little bit of a red flag to a buyer. Because what they see is that, hey, you're growing your revenue, great, you know, 15, 20% a year, but you're doing it all by borrowing money from a bank to acquire additional practices, and your core business is stalled. And that's a problem, and it reflects on you as an operator. So we, when we think about revenue, yeah, the big number is sexy, and we all like to fall back on that. But what we really want to focus on is same-store sales, and we want those same-store sales to be in excess of 10% year-over-year um, for a practice-by-practice level consideration. Okay, Different wrinkle to revenue for sure. EBITDA, yeah, we know that. EBITDA is the you know hallmark of all group practices in terms of valuation and debt leverage and associate equity models and all that other kind of stuff. We talk about EBITDA dollars a lot. The real metric in terms of EBITDA is EBITDA margin. That's a percentage. So let me see if I can break this down in simple uh, terms that you can follow audibly because those of you who are driving a car or on the treadmill or you know, trying to listen to this while you're eating a sandwich in between patients or something, numbers are hard to follow. So let's keep these numbers really round. Let's say that you and I both own businesses that generate $3 million in EBITDA. We would both say that those businesses are valuable and, and they may have the same valuation multiple to reflect that. So each, you have a $3 million EBITDA business and I have a $3 million EBITDA business. If my business that generates $3 million in EBITDA has five locations and each location generates $3 million in revenue, $15 million total, then that means my EBITDA margin is 20%. Put another way, 15 million in revenue at a 20% margin is $3 million in EBITDA. So I've gotten to my $3 million in EBITDA across five locations because they generate healthy EBITDA margins. On the other hand, if your business that generates $3 million in revenue has 30 practices, each generating a million dollars in revenue, 
and their margin is thus 10%, you've built a huge geographic empire at a low, low margin. Which is the business you'd rather own? Five locations at 15 million in revenue and 3 million in EBITDA or 30 locations, 30 million in revenue and 3 million in EBITDA? I can tell you which one I would rather own and which one I definitely wouldn't want to own. And I can probably tell you, I can make an academic case at least on which one might value more highly to an acquirer. So this is a context around not just looking at the EBITDA dollars that your business has spent off, but really getting dialed into the margins and where you can make an, a marginal impact um, to the businesses that you own. Because if you can make a greater marginal impact, you probably have to rely less on revenue to do that. And that's a more valuable business in and of itself. Wages, biggest line item in every business when taken in the aggregate, all right? And when you look at wages all in, uh, in a group practice, you should be in the mid to high 40s as it relates to an entire percentage, not including benefits or anything. This is just straight wages. That's doctor, that's staff, that's owner, that's all of the above. And it should include normalized uh, compensation if you have an owner practicing clinically. So all in wages, mid to high 40s. It's I would say rare that we see a group that has achieved that level. Uh, most are in the high 40s to low 50s uh, in terms of percentages. So how do we how do we break this down? Well, if we break down that number, our doctor wages all in should be about 22 to 24 percent of revenue. This is in a general dentistry context here. Specialty is different based around the specialty itself. Um, but for general dentistry, about 22 to 24% uh, of revenue. And again, this includes normalizing uh, owner clinical compensation where the owners are still practicing clinically, full-time or part-time. We need to normalize that owner compensation rate uh, as it relates to replacement costs. Um, here's a quick rule of thumb also that you might be able to fall back on as you start to evaluate your overall doctor productivity. Uh, the ADA does some good analysis of this on a year-over-year -year context through their uh, Health Policy Institute, HPI, uh, and I haven't seen anything for 21 yet or even 22, but back in 2020, the last numbers that we had uh, were that solo dentists and private practice uh, generated about $490 in gross billings per hour. So solo dentist, private uh, practice, so, solo general dentist, excuse me, private practice, about $490 uh, per hour uh, for the ADA. And there's, their uh, analysis tends to skew more towards the traditional solo practice market space. Uh, for specialists, that number was about 670. All right. So it could be uh, a little bit higher, hopefully would be a little bit higher. Uh, in a group practice context, but that at least gives you a place to start as it relates to some 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 semblance of an individual benchmark. Call it 500 bucks uh, per chair hour in gross billings for a general dentist. And again, that was 2020. Haven't seen any updated data as of yet. Um, while we're talking about wages, you know, outside of doctor wages, it's obviously staff wages probably aiming for somewhere between 21 to 23% of revenue, again, for a general dentistry 
uh, group that obviously includes hygiene. Uh, and when we look at the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS, for their numbers of 2021, again, haven't seen anything for 2022 yet, the median wage nationally for dental assistance was about $18.50 per hour. Again, in 2021, the median wage nationally for dental assistance was about $18.50 per hour. Same year, uh, same data revealed uh, medium, median wages uh, for hygienists was about $37.50 per hour. Again, that's 2021, $37.50 per hour for hygienists, $18.50 per hour for assistance. So again, that's nationwide. Every market is different, obviously, but at least it gives you a, a number to fall back on there um, because wages are the largest um, uh, expense or I guess doctor wages are variable truly, but you know, staff wages are more fixed. And, and this is an area where uh, we see a lot of wage creep or wage increases over the last couple of years. And the reason for that is that there's been a huge segment of the population that segued out of the workforce and has not returned. So it's, it's harder to find uh, capable people. Uh, and we've had to pay up to keep those uh, who are capable. Um, and inflation has been a catalyst for that. I would tell you that you know, as inflation kind of subsides in the coming years, none of those staff that demanded higher wages are going to be giving back any of those wage gains. So you got to be growing the revenue of the business and getting more productivity out of your people if you're going to pay them more to do it. Uh, and, and really getting that number under the 50% mark is the goal that you're, you're shooting for. Um, clinical supplies is usually an easy one to manage, but people do a really poor job of managing it. Clinical supplies should be about four to 5% in terms of a, a group practice uh, percent of revenue. The challenge here uh, is that for those groups that work with a distribution company, um, distribution companies make it easy to pay your, your monthly statement. They run the credit card once uh, on the statement cycle. Uh, and you pay by statement instead of paying by invoice. The challenge there is that most of you don't go back and have anybody make adjustments um, based on your, your payment to the distribution company. And when I say make adjustments, I, I mean adjusting the payment you made for things like tech service parts and labor, software maintenance and subscriptions and e-services, sometimes office supplies, small equipment um, or, or technology. Uh, instruments and hand pieces. All of that gets billed on your monthly statement and it gets run against your credit card once. But not all of that is a function of the patient flows in the business. So we've got to get accurate reporting in this context. And there's a lot of slop left in that dental supply line item on your PL. If you're going to build a bigger business, this is an area that you can get some cost reduction on through formularies and bulk purchase discounts and a lot of other things, both for distribution and your manufacturer partners. But you've got to get clarity around what the number is before you start asking for concessions on it. All right. So spend the time to at least reallocate some of those dollars. The last one I want to hit on is marketing and advertising. Um, 
you know, we see this all over the board. I, I've seen it as low as 1% and as high as 10%. Um, and if you listen to um, a lot of the marketing agencies that we follow, uh, SMC National, Wondrist, Studio 88, a lot of these uh, Class A firms, um, you know, they will tell you that referrals are golden. Patient referrals are golden. Um, because they are uh, a high trust new patient. You, you, they, they, uh, the referral, uh, the person generating the referral validates your business proposition and you as a clinician. And that's tremendous. Referrals are not scalable, meaning it, it's, you, you take them when you get them, but it's tough to predict. And really the marketing focus and, and the ROI and, and how you judge your marketing efforts needs to be on your, your marketing spend, whatever that is, print, media, SEO, website, et cetera, et cetera. So when we start thinking about how much you spend on marketing, there are a lot of metrics within the metrics um, that we need to, uh, to pay attention to. We'll cover that on another podcast sometime. Um, but I would typically tell you that 1% to 2% on marketing is probably too low because you're relying more on those referrals to drive your new patient counts, and that's not scalable. On the other hand, the 8 to 10% range that I've seen before uh, is probably too high because you're just throwing money into areas and you're not really sure on what the, the outcomes truly are from it. And arguably, nobody's responsible for managing that budget or let alone the results. So this is a scenario where the number is probably 3 to 5%. For most businesses, I would feel certain that if you're spending that amount, you're spending enough and hopefully you're tracking the results. Ultimately, one of the results that you've got to get from all of your marketing efforts is a minimum of 20 new patients per month per dentist. 20 new patients per month per full-time dentist. We'd really like for this number to be 30 to 40 new patients a month per full-time dentist, but 20 is the, uh, uh, the bare minimum for that uh, effort to be successful and for your business to be experiencing any growth. So hopefully the, the big bucket number, three to 5% uh, is something you can fall back on, but the way you peel back the layer of that onion and, and really relate it into a provider-centric metric is about 20 new patients per month. So uh, look, I, I know this has been a lot on today's show uh, in terms of metrics and, and things to follow. That's why I said get your pad and pen ready because you're probably going to need it. Uh, we did write a blog on this um, sometime recently, and you might be able to find that on our website if you're looking for, for printed context behind it. But these are some of the numbers you need to get dialed in more into your business if you're if you're going to truly have confidence in scaling it and know that what you're scaling is ultimately profitable and generates more EBITDA, which generates higher levels of valuation. And that's why we're all doing it. So hope you found that to be educational and informative. Again, I truly appreciate all of you sending in questions, compliments, emails, texts, and, and all of that. We value it a tremendous amount. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, I'd encourage you to, to share it with a colleague or a friend because that's the way we grow our audience too. And it looks like judging from the downloads each month, at least our, our podcast audience is growing and growing fairly rapidly. And we're grateful for that. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for being a subscriber and a listener. 
we'll see you on the next episode.